We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 this morning in our study. I appreciate uh, the presence of each one here. Uh, we do have quite a few people who are out traveling. Uh, we'll be traveling starting tomorrow to go see family this week. Uh, should be back later in the week. Uh, but there's many of you who are here because you are traveling, and uh, we, we appreciate you being here with us uh, while you're with friends and family uh, or on vacation. Uh, we, we always appreciate the encouragement that that, that provides us. Um, appreciate the singing and uh, excited to be here this morning. Have you ever been on trial for anything? Have you ever felt like you've been on trial for something? Um, I don't think we've got a whole lot of people here who are criminals or who have been in jail, though that would be fine if uh, someone had that situation uh, and they're here trying to make their lives better. Uh, but for the most part, I don't think many of us have experienced interrogation uh, beyond our parents uh, or possibly our schools, you know, the administrators in the schools. You know, the, uh, interrogation doesn't t- typically happen to us very often. Uh, it's not really something that we look forward to or that we would want to experience at all. Um, but maybe you have. Maybe you've been risen up to a leadership position, and that required certain amount of interrogation, you know, putting you on trial, so to speak. Maybe a job interview, something like that. But, you know, if, if you were put on trial uh, because somebody did something wrong, uh, and there's going to be punishment, and you didn't do anything wrong. Have you ever had that happen to you? I've had that happen in school before. How do you feel? I mean, is that not just a terrifying feeling? Like the sense of dread comes over you and the idea and the prospect that you could receive such a harsh punishment, harsh judgment, uh, even though you haven't done anything wrong. It's, it's just terrifying. And, and it's not something that any of us would ever want to experience. And in that moment, I just remember being stunned, having no clue what to say, uh, but hoping that I could defend myself well enough to not get in trouble. Uh, And if I did do something wrong, uh, hoping I could get out of it somehow. Uh, That was the only thing I had on my mind in that moment was getting out of that room or getting out of that situation uh, as quickly as possible. Well, what we're going to be studying about uh, this morning is Jesus on trial. Uh, This is, we've been been studying about Jesus a lot uh, as he's coming nearer and nearer to the cross, to being crucified uh, near the end of his life. Uh, We we left off uh, uh, talking about how he had been betrayed by Judas in chapter 26, 47 through 56, uh, and his his enemies have come and they have seized him and taken him. Uh, and now we're reading about where they led him. Let's, let's pick up in verse 57. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, And going inside, he sat with with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, 
though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? As we look at this text, there's more we're going we're gonna to work our way through. We see Jesus on trial in the, in the very beginnings of it. And notice that they're working really hard to try to find a way to condemn Jesus. It's interesting, right? They're, they've already arrested him. <laughs> and now there's a, a, a temporary period in the middle of the night where they start bringing men forward to make some kind of accusations against Jesus. And so all of these false accusations are made. And what's fascinating is the priests don't accept the false accusations. None of the false accusations are good enough. None of them are airtight. Asking a few questions reveals they're lying, that there's something untrue about the things that are being said about Jesus. Because how do you condemn an innocent man? He, he's done nothing wrong. All of these accusations are, are made up. And very clearly... Uh, very easily debunked. So, at last, it says, two men come in and they tell all of the people there what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Oh, that sounds like something Jesus would say, doesn't it? No, that doesn't really sound like something Jesus would say. That's very proud, right? Uh, they're misrepresenting and misinterpreting the words that Jesus actually spoke to them. You go back to John, or forward to John chapter 2, and you read about an instance where Jews are saying, give us a sign that you're the Messiah. And Jesus responded to them by saying, destroy this temple and I will uh, raise it up after three days. Talking about his body. That was the sign he was going to give to the Jews to reveal to them that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And they have misrepresented his words and they have misinterpreted his words and they've used those words against him. And they ask, don't you have anything to say for yourself? You see, the words that are being said are blasphemous. I am able to destroy this temple and rebuild it. Uh, anybody who wants to destroy the temple, that's a sense of blasphemy, right? Well, the problem with that is also, though, there's nothing about blasphemy that would allow the Jews to kill somebody under Roman authority. So they've got this charge of blasphemy, but only the Jewish law would allow for them to murder or to, to, to put someone to death for that cause. And the Romans would not allow for that. So how does this really help them? We'll see as we go through the story. It does. They, they end up convincing the Romans to allow them to crucify Jesus for this cause. But all of this is just made up. This is just a completely mock trial. And they don't understand Jesus and they don't like Jesus and they don't want Jesus around. They're jealous of Jesus' power and his presence and the truths that he speaks against them. Back in chapter 23, we saw him calling them all hypocrites because of the evil things that they've done. And the way that they act and the way that they think is all completely contrary 
to what God actually desires for them to do. How are they going to uh, get to Jesus? How are they going to get under his skin? How are they going to make him trip up? Well, they bring false accusation after false accusation against him, and now they claim that he says something he didn't really say. Well, how's Jesus going to respond to this? Let's read verse 63 and 64. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. It's fascinating. You know, as you, as you read this and they're asking him and adjuring him to say something, you know, I just think about all the many things that Jesus has said throughout this book. Jesus has always had something to say to cut them down, uh, to cut to the heart of the problem of what they're saying. And so we're expecting Jesus to come in here with something that shows how foolish they are and how ridiculous this whole thing is. But the first thing it tells us is Jesus had been remaining completely silent. He had said nothing to them as they have tossed all these false accusations against him. And even whenever they, they misrepresent his words, he has been completely silent. Can you imagine that? Notice silence has removed all of their ammunition to the point where the high priest gets frustrated and he commands him to speak. He says, I adjure you. Now, that's a, a, another way of saying, I command you, and if you don't do what I say as I am the high priest, I will curse you. So he commands him to speak. And so Jesus says something, and what he says is so fascinating. He says, you have said so. You have said so. Have you heard that before? Do you remember that? Back whenever Judas, uh, whenever Jesus was telling all of his disciples, one of you will betray me, they all come up to him and say, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And, and Judas comes up to Jesus and says, is it I, Lord? And Jesus says to Judas, you have said so. It's an interesting phrase. It means that Judas said in his own mind, in his own heart, I am the one. I am the betrayer. Well, now Jesus is saying this to the high priest. Whenever he asks the question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus tells the priest, the high priest, you have said so. The high priest knows. In his mind, he has said, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And Jesus knows what he has said in his own mind, in his own thoughts. And he says to him, you have said so. You know it to be true. But, he says, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Judgment. A very clear statement of judgment. That Jesus is going to return and bring judgment upon those who have rejected him. You see, 
the, the high priest believe, or knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't want to believe in him. And he doesn't want to accept the truths that are coming out of his mouth. He doesn't want to submit to the will of Jesus. He wants to be the one in control. He wants to be the one in power, in authority. He wants to remain in that high priestly position. So he doesn't want to believe what Jesus, that Jesus is truly the Messiah. That Jesus says, you're going to. You're going to see me come in power. Wow. So Jesus always has these words that, that cut to the heart of what's going on. But notice how none of these words are defending himself, but instead just simply accusing and condemning the high priest for this evil that he knows he's doing inside of his own heart. Verse 65 says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Mm. Wow. You know, this whole time, the high priest has been working on Jesus. He's been trying to get him to speak. He's been waiting for that moment. Because until Jesus spoke, there's really no thing that they can grab onto, that they can accuse him of. And now these words that have come out of Jesus' mouth apparently somehow fit the bill by claiming that he's the Messiah. He has somehow blasphemed. And so they say, he has uttered blasphemy. They say, he did say he's able to destroy the temple and rebuild it. So the high priest makes this grand show. He rips his clothes. Now, at first we're like, okay, we've seen people rip their clothes before throughout the Bible. But what's fascinating is that's condemned in the Old Testament. <laughs> High priest is not supposed to put dirt on his head. He's not supposed to rip his clothes. Uh, Aaron was the high priest. He watched his sons be burned in front of him, and he was commanded not to show that kind of response and that kind of remorse as the Lord's high priest. He's not allowed to do that. But here we have this high priest who is an evil high priest, breaking that law, tearing his clothes, and it's, it's, it's presumed that he's doing it in righteousness because of his zeal for the Lord, but all that you're really doing is being a sensationalist and getting these crowds riled up over what's happened. They've never seen anything like this before. They've never seen a high priest act this way. And these kind of thoughts might be going through their head. How dare he claim that the high priest is lying to himself about, about Jesus, that Jesus is really the Messiah? How dare he claim to be the Messiah? Who does he think he is? And everybody gets all in an uproar, and everybody's all excited, and they say he deserves death. They spit on his face, and they strike him, they slap him, and they mock him. 
you're the Messiah, you can prophesy to us. Who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? It's such a sad scene. I wanted to move into Peter because there's actually a connection. I think these two stories, what we see in 69 through 75, are intertwined with what we see about the trial of Jesus. There's another trial that's about to take place with Peter that I think we can relate to, but we're going to save that till next week because there's just there's, there's too much stuff in this text for us to think about. What do we learn from this trial? the events that take place with our Lord. I think the biggest thing that stands out to me is life's not fair. It's just not. This whole trial is just so irritating and frustrating. To know that someone who is so awesome and innocent was treated in this way and accused of something that he didn't do because of the jealousy and the pride of religious leaders. It's so sad. If this was a movie that we were writing today, we would want Jesus to stand up and do a matrix move and make everybody go flying, you know. That's what we would expect to happen. It's not what happens. And that's not what's going to happen with us either. Life is not fair because Satan doesn't play by the rules. He doesn't play by the rules. You know, these Jews had tons of rules uh, about convening and having a trial whenever someone has committed some evil. Uh, they had tons of, of ways to go about things in order to accomplish justice in their community, and they threw them all out because they had a greater desire for themselves to be exalted than for keeping any rules. And you know, that's, that's life. When we get targeted by evil people, they are going to use whatever means necessary to accomplish their purpose. And it's going to be deceptive, and it's going to be manipulative, and it's going to be things that uh, no one in their right mind would ever think is okay, but all of a sudden they think it's okay. And they convince other people that it's okay, and, and everybody groups up together and believes that some evil thing is perfectly fine. And that's going to lead to a bunch of heartache and suffering and pain. These people who are so religious have become completely disconnected from God. And that removes their sense of justice. And that is very much what we see in the world around us today. That's what makes our heart ache at the thought of our children growing up in a world that doesn't know God and is disconnected from God. But notice these are religious people. These are people who've been studying the word all the time, and they're still disconnected from God. And they still have no sense of justice whenever it comes to what they want and their selfishness and their evil. They're going to get what they want, no matter the cost. You know, it reminds me of, 
trying to play a game that uh, my children make up. You know, it's pretty easy for them to win that game because if I do something that wins according to the rules five minutes ago, uh, all of a sudden now it doesn't win anymore. You know, it's, this is the way it works, and this is the way evil people work. They, they change things, you know. If they do something, it's okay. If you do the same thing, it's not okay. And so what we see is we're fighting in a war where the rules don't apply to everyone. There's rules of engagement, and they apply to us, and everybody hates us if we, if we break them. But if, if they break them, it's all okay, and that's the way it is. Jesus had to deal with that. Jesus wasn't excused from that. He lived through it. But I think we learn a lot from this trial. What do we learn? How can we grow from this? How should we handle the unfair world that we live in? First of all, I think we notice Jesus' silence. And I think we need to pay very close attention to it. Jesus doesn't defend himself all the time. You know, it's kind of depressing, uh, the idea that we're always going to lose because they don't play by the rules and things like that. But what we see Jesus doing is the best he can do to win this fight, to win this little battle that he's in. He keeps completely silent as they talk about him. He doesn't speak up when his name is being run through the mud. He keeps completely silent. You ever watch a presidential debate? And uh, have you ever tried to count the number of times that they slander the other person and talk about something they said or they did? And it just blew my mind how many times, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whoever would jump in and try to defend themselves. Like they can't keep their mouth shut for long enough that the person can continue to finish their thoughts. They have to jump in. They have to speak up. They have to defend themselves. Have you ever felt that inside yourself? As somebody is talking about you, have you ever felt that urge to say something to defend yourself? My name is being run through the mud. I have to say something. These people will think that I am this evil, horrible person that I'm really not. I have to speak up. I have to say something. Well, Jesus understood that our words condemn us more often than they justify us. If we speak out of desperation and fear, we might admit something that we didn't do inadvertently. If we speak out of anger, we might say something that deserves punishment. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of how it ends up working. It's so hard for us to say something that's right. When James was talking about the tongue, he talked about the danger of using it and and said that uh, if we use it, it's like starting a fire in a very dry forest. That's essentially what we're doing. Uh, with our tongues. Uh, he says, uh, not, not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for you know that uh, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. As we say more words, we receive stricter judgment. People have ammunition whereby they can destroy us. And we have to understand that is true. 
We all stumble in many ways. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We see that in Jesus. His, his righteousness is, is seen in its uh, completeness by the control of his tongue, the ability to keep silent and not speak when he's being talked about. Uh, whenever I was in West Palm Beach, uh, the guy that, that trained me had somebody who was disgruntled. Uh, he didn't, Brent didn't do the things that the man thought he should do. And so the man decided he's going to go and start telling everybody about how bad a person he is and all these bad things he's doing. And uh, I was like, okay, so what are we going to do here? Like, how are, how are you going to handle this? You know, are you going to, are you going to, say something in your sermon? Are you going to, you know, address the congregation? This guy's spreading gossip, lies about you. He said, no. He said, this is the reason why we toe the line, we keep our nose clean, and we do the work. What we've done speaks for itself. We don't have to say anything. These people know my reputation. They know my name. This guy can say all that he wants to say, and if they hear about it and they're concerned about it and they come to me, then I'll let them know what's happening, but I'm not going to stand up and defend myself. It just blew my mind. Like, how can you do that? That seems so hard, so difficult. But that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. He doesn't stand up to defend himself. He doesn't think, I can't allow people to talk about me this way. I've got to say something. He keeps his mouth shut. I think we need to learn to do the exact same thing whether it's on social media <laughs> or uh, at, a, at a job place, uh, in our homes, wherever the accusations are coming from about us, we would do better to be quiet than to try to defend ourselves. But also we learn from this that there is a place to speak. There is a place to speak. Because Jesus doesn't stay silent the whole time. He actually does say something when the high priest commands him to and speaks directly to him. But what he says is not evil, it's good. And it's not long. He could have preached the whole sermon to these people if he wanted to, and he had plenty to say, I'm sure, but he only says what's true. You know I'm the Messiah. And I'm going to come and, and I'm going to be judging you for what you're doing. That's it. That's all there is. Now, if we have that opportunity, <laughs> after we keep silent, what are we going to say? You know, when it's time to speak, I think we need to learn from Jesus to say only what's true. Not to spew out accusations of our own that may or may not be true. <laughs> Not to curse those who are doing evil against us or to use hurtful words. We just need to say what's true. Then we just need to be silent again and accept what's coming. Because that's what our Lord did for us. As we go throughout all of this text, 
all of the crucifixion of Jesus and everything that we're studying, we see what we see here repeated over and over again. And that is that Jesus is going to be faithful to his promise that he made. He told God, not my will, but your will be done. And what we see him do in this very trial is submitting his will to God's will. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. And that's who he is. And that's what he does. And I hope that you find encouragement from that. Because as we look at ourselves and we see that we've spoken when we shouldn't have, we've said things we shouldn't have said that are untrue in defense of ourselves, and we've stumbled and made all kinds of mistakes in our lives, what we see in this text is Jesus is going to be our Messiah. He's going to be the one who provides salvation and forgiveness of all of our sins. And we don't have to doubt that he'll do that. He is faithful. He is true. He always does what he says he'll do. And if he says he'll be merciful and he says he'll be faithful to us and that he'll intercede for us, then we have to believe that he will. If you're here this morning and you've not accepted that sacrifice, you've not accepted Jesus as your Messiah, I hope you're not like the priest who believed in his heart that Jesus is the Messiah and said, even in his own mind, he is the Messiah, but still refused to submit to him. I hope that instead you will give him your life and submit to him with all your heart And that means a tough life of submission and righteousness, but it becomes a pleasure to serve him. And I hope that we can help you in any way, if you'll let us. Please come as we stand and as we sing.